I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word uh, to 2 Samuel 18. 2 Samuel 18. If you've been with us through our study of 1 and 2 Samuel, we are now uh, in the, the final chapters. We're nearing the finish line. We saw in 1 Samuel how David spent much of that time running from Saul. And now towards the end of 2 Samuel, we find David running from his son Absalom. Uh, David has fled Jerusalem, and his son Absalom has taken the throne, and now he wants to take his father's life. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that uh, God has thwarted Absalom's plans because it's his sovereign will that David reign, not Absalom, and his plans won't be thwarted by Absalom or anyone else, and so Absalom Uh, doesn't heed good advice, he takes bad advice, and in doing that, uh, David gains the upper hand because David learns about Absalom's plans, and so he's had time to prepare, he's uh, moved with his men, he's got uh, the advantage now in battle, and now we'll see how that unfolds for Absalom, who in seeking to take the life of his father David, uh, will actually lose his life in battle. And so we're going to look at 2 Samuel 18 in its entirety and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read today's passage. We stand because this is the Word of God preserved and handed down to us. And this is what that Word says. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched by, hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forests of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. 
For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And Absalom blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said, You're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, then there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man. And comes with him good news. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimez answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. If you will, pray with me. Father, as we consider your word this morning, a word that deals with 
war and pride and vanity, with death and grief and agony. Lord, help us to consider our own mortality. And help us to consider our own days that you have numbered and yet we don't know what that number is. And help us, Lord, to be ready for the day that we stand before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you know the name Howard Hughes. Hughes was at one time one of the wealthiest and most influential men in all the world. In the mid-1900s, he produced films. He set aviation records. And he dated the most famous women of his day. But if you know much about Hughes, you probably know how his life ended. He became somewhat of a recluse. He was a germaphobe. He withdrew from everyone and everything and hid himself in a hotel room in Las Vegas. He became addicted to painkillers and drugs. He was malnourished and he eventually died in 1976 of kidney failure. At his death, his six foot four inch frame weighed about 90 pounds and his body was scarred by drug use to the point that he was completely unrecognizable. The FBI had to use dental records to confirm that he indeed was the infamous Howard Hughes. He left behind no children, no will. His 2.5 billion estate was fought over for years and eventually distributed among 22 of his distant relatives. He was a man who at one point, people would have said he, he had it all. And yet he died in shame. We're reminded of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, when he asked the question, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Hughes isn't the only one who would follow this path, who would go this same route. Many would before him, many would after him, many still are today. And we see this path as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 18, to the life and now death of David's son Absalom. We read back in 2 Samuel 14 that in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. He was a man of great beauty, a man of great wealth, a man who was an heir to the throne, who literally had it all. But he was not content to live in his father's shadow. He was not content to wait for that throne. And so he conspired against King David. And in his pursuit of his father's throne, he lost his life. And so we're going to consider Absalom today. Consider both his vanity in life and his shame and death. We're going to consider David and how he responds in his grief and agony as we consider our own mortality, as we consider the state of our own souls, and prayerfully as we together put our hope in Jesus Christ. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. Number one, we see that Absalom's life of vanity ends in a pit of shame. His life of vanity ends in a pit of shame. And so this chapter begins with David's men coming and giving him counsel. They 
have the upper hand. You may recall how things have unfolded up to this point. Uh, Absalom had received good counsel from Ahithophel, and that counsel was to strike soon and strike quickly. It was to allow Ahithophel to take an army with him to hunt down and go after David. But what Absalom didn't like about Ahithophel's plan is that Absalom wasn't really included in it. Now, we don't know why from the text, but chances are Ahithophel valued Absalom's life. He believed he was to be king. He didn't want any danger to come to him. So he was essentially saying, you, you stay home and be safe. We'll go take care of business. But Absalom wouldn't have it. And in his foolishness, he wanted to be in the middle of the battle. Well, notice the counsel now that we see David receiving from his men. He too wants to go into battle. He too wants to be there in the thick of it. And yet his men too give him wisdom and counsel and say, no, you stay home. Your life is worth more than 10,000 of our lives. If we die on the battlefield, the kingdom will go on. But if you die on the battlefield, the kingdom will die with you. And notice the contrast that we see here between Absalom's response to the counsel he received and David's response to the counsel he receives. Absalom only wants to hear a plan that involves him. And his vanity and his pride, he wants to be at the center of it. But David here seems to be taking a road of humility. And when you consider this, then it takes us back to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 is where we saw so much fall apart for David. 2 Samuel 11 is where we read that at a time when kings would go out to war, that David did not go. And he found himself there on the rooftop. And on the rooftop, he looked and saw Bathsheba. And it's a, a downward spiral in his life from there. And when we read that text, oftentimes we, we look at that commentary on David being home while his men were on the battlefield as being something negative about David. He shouldn't have been home. He should have been with his men. But perhaps he had received the same counsel then. Perhaps it was told to him then, no, no you need to stay home. You need to be protected. Now, certainly David made a lot of terribly foolish decisions in chapter 11, but that doesn't mean that was one of them. It could have been he received some more advice. We don't know for sure there, but we do know for sure here. And so David stays at home and his men go out to fight. And Absalom and his men are defeated. And so we have this contrast between Absalom and his vanity and his pride and not listening to counsel, we have David here. It seems his, his humility and listening to good counsel. Therefore, David lives. Absalom is defeated. But not just Absalom. We notice there in verse 6 and following, 20,000 men fall in this battle. And we don't know how many of those men sided with Absalom and how many sided with David, but we know that many fell that day. And the Scripture says that more fell because of the terrain and the environment than did by the sword. And it seems that this battle, rather than being fought out in the open, out in the plains, out in a field, it was fought in a forest and it was dangerous. And the environment itself, the terrain itself was treacherous. And we know that specifically in the life and in the death of Absalom. Here we read that in defeat he appears to be fleeing and as he's fleeing he encounters David's men and so in haste, he is trying to get through this thick forest. And the Scripture says he literally gets caught in a tree in such a way that his mule runs out from under him. 
Specifically, it says his head is caught fast in an oak. Now, we don't know the exact details of that. We don't know if that as he was riding under that tree, through that tree, if he literally hit it with his head, it knocked him unconscious. We don't know if he was caught by the neck. It could have been he was caught by his hair, which might sound peculiar, but consider what we read about Absalom back in chapter 14. He was actually known for his hair. When we read about his handsome appearance, we read that when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. The weight of his hair was 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go get my hair cut, they usually don't tell me the weight of what comes off. I can assure you if they did, it would be very low. But the, the, the picture here, these 200 shekels, this, this picture is that, that Absalom had, had a massive head of hair. It, it, it seems to indicate not just that he had a, a full and heavy head of hair, but that he, he gloried in his hair. He gloried in his appearance. He, he wanted to show it off. He, he, in his vanity, wanted people to look at him. There was nobody more handsome than him in all of Israel, and he wanted to make sure all of Israel knew that. And so in his vanity and his pride, he, he wore this full, long hair as a symbol of pride. Not a sin that some of us struggle with, but, but certainly he did. And so perhaps the reason we're given that detail in chapter 14 is so that now in chapter 18 we get a fuller picture of what's taking place. That this object of his vanity and his pride would be what leads to his very demise. Because now he's, he's hung up in the thick of this oak by his head, perhaps by his hair. Conscious, unconscious, we don't know. But, but he can't get out. And as he's there, hanging from this tree, well, one of the people from David's army sees it and he, he comes to Joab, the commander, and he tells him what's taken place. And and quickly, Joab says, well, you, you should have killed him. Well, the servant responds, well, no, the, the king doesn't want him to die. You'll remember, King David gave specific instructions to the commanders to preserve the life of his son. But Joab here takes matters into his own hand. And we could spend a lot of time considering this, but I think just in summary, what we know of Joab leading up to this, what we see of Joab here is that Joab is one who He's concerned about king and country. And he's probably looking down the corridors of what is to come. And he, he knows Absalom can't live and the kingdom be at peace. If Absalom survives this battle, David's life will always be at risk. The kingdom will always be at risk. And so he, he personally, I think, believes he's putting king and country over the actual wishes and desires of the king. And so he doesn't obey David's orders. He orders Absalom to be killed. And so he himself runs spears into his body. And then he, along with his armor bearers, take the life of Absalom. We're going to read that Absalom's body then is thrown into a pit. Verse 17, they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. Now, we might be tempted just to read this and think, well, this is what you did in battle. You know, there's no time to carry the body back. There's 20,000 who've died. 
And so we kind of glaze over this as if, well, that's just what you do. But if we spend a little bit more time looking at this, considering this, I think there's more to it than that because the way that Absalom's body is treated in death is consistent in the Scriptures of the way the body of someone who was wicked or who was under a curse was treated. You can go back to the book of Joshua and you can read in Joshua 7 about Achan and the sin of Achan and how Achan was dealt with. He was stoned to death for his sin, and then he was buried in a pit under a large pile of stones. Not just he, but others, a king in Joshua 8, was hanged from a tree, thrown into a pit, and covered with a large pile of stones. Throughout the Psalms, we see this as a picture of the death of the wicked. In Psalm ninety-four thirteen, we read about a pit being dug for the wicked. And so, what these things seem to indicate is that Absalom being thrown into that pit, those stones being heaped on him was symbolic. It was a picture. It was the, the men of David coming and saying, he, he's under a curse, he, he's wicked, he's, he's sinned against the Lord's anointed. And that was marked in the way they dealt with his body. We see here the, the writer gives us a little bit of a contrast between how Absalom's body is dealt with and perhaps how he thought it would one day be dealt with. It seems at some point earlier, Absalom had already set up his own headstone. (laughs) He had erected a monument in his honor. These are things that kings and others would normally do or others would do for them after their passing, after their death. But but while he was alive, and it seems at at a fairly young age, because it's noted that he hadn't had children yet, he establishes this monument in his honor, in his vanity, in his pride. He wants to make sure people know how great he was. And yet his body wouldn't be buried by that monument. His body would be buried in a pit. His life of vanity ends literally in a pit of shame. Some time ago I was reading about the the death of Adolf Hitler. Many of you may be familiar with what happened to Hitler. He was one who thought he had the whole world in his hands. He wanted to conquer the world, and yet as things began to fail for him and close in on him, he found himself hiding out in a bunker. Fearful of what would happen to him, he took his own life. And then he had his men take him outside, out of the bunker. They dug a pit. They burned his body and dumped his bones into that pit and then covered it there. David in Psalm 55 says this, But you, O God, will cast them into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Whether it's Hitler, whether it's Hughes, whether it's Absalom, that the pattern we see here is that those who seek to set up a throne for themselves, who will not bow their knee to the throne of the Almighty, that they find themselves facing death like all of us. And in that death, we see here in Absalom's death, he's covered in shame. He he opposed the king. He opposed his father. But it wasn't just an opposition to a father, an opposition to a king. He, He was opposing the Lord's anointed. And it cost him everything. But he isn't the only one that suffers in this passage. We see the Lord's anointed himself, David, suffering as well. Which brings us to that second point, number two. David's sinful past brings him an overwhelming grief. 
David's sinful past brings him an overwhelming grief. So throughout this passage, it's clear, David is very concerned about Absalom. <laughs> in fact, it'll be, he'll be confronted in the next chapter that his concern for Absalom is greater than his concern for his people and his men. His concern for the one who's betrayed him and conspired against him is greater than his concern for those who've been loyal to him. And so out of that concern, he, he doesn't want Absalom to die. But then the news comes to him. And there's all kinds of details given to us. We don't need to get lost in the weeds on this. Essentially, eventually he, he learns that his son has died. And his response is anguish. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, the phrase here, deeply moved, is one word in the Hebrew. It means to literally be trembling in anguish. But to be so overwhelmed by grief, so distraught that, that everything about you is shaken to your core. So some of you have experienced this. So some of you have been there when someone you love died or you've received news that, that someone you love died. And it, it, it overwhelms us. It shakes us. We, we tremble and we grieve. And so it's fully understandable that David would respond in such a way when he hears his son has died. But I think that there's more to it than that. There's, there's more to just the, the loss of the son, which in and of itself is enough to overwhelm anyone. Parents shouldn't bury their children. David shouldn't bury his son. And this isn't the first son he would bury or has buried. But I think there's more to his grief. I mean, he certainly has experienced loss up to this point. Absalom has died. Absalom's older brother Amnon has died by the hand, by the order of Absalom. The son that David and Bathsheba had has died. And he knew what it was to experience this loss, but his grief is extremely intense here. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One I've already mentioned, he, he, he's lost his son, a parent grieving a son. But two, I think that David's grief is overwhelming here because he, he realizes that Absalom's death, at least in part, is his fault. That this is judgment on David for his sin. That this is the judgment that Nathan told him was coming to him. When he sinned with Bathsheba, when he sinned against Uriah, when he sinned against God and sinned against the people. In 2 Samuel 12, God tells David through Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And now that the weight of that that the cost of that sin has become so overwhelming to David that, that he is crying out, I, I wish that I could have died instead of you, Absalom. Instead of you, Amnon. Instead of you, my, my infant child. I wish that I could have just died for this wickedness and this sin. 
David, I think, understands that he's responsible, at least in part, for Absalom's death, and so he is grieving. I think another reason, perhaps, for his grief is because of the condition of Absalom's own soul. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that when the infant son, the child that Bathsheba bears to David, the child that he knows is going to die, that before that child dies, we read that, that David mourns and he grieves and he's in anguish, but then when he, he hears the news that the child has died, he seems to be okay. So much so that his servants come to him and say, we, we don't understand. You, you anguished, you grieved while your child was sick, and now we tell you the child is dead, and, and now you clean yourself and you eat, and it seems like things are okay. This doesn't make sense to us. And do you remember what David says? He essentially says while, while he was alive, he was, he was leaning on the, the mercy of God and perhaps God would let his son live, but now his son is dead and he can't do anything about it. He says, where my son is, I will one day be. You know, there seems to be this, this trust that David has in that moment that God in his sovereign grace has secured his infant child son and that his son's okay and that one day where his son is, he will go to but you contrast that with how he responds to Absalom. Absalom is one that certainly had brought great worry, great anxiety, all kinds of things into David's life. But, but once he finds out he's died, I mean, he's overwhelmed by grief. He's overwhelmed by, anx uh, by, by anguish. And I think perhaps the reason that that's so different than his response to when his child dies is because he... He, he knows. He knows. Absalom's not a man of faith. He, he's not in a covenant relationship with God. And I think David here knows that his son was wicked and will now suffer under the judgment of God for all eternity. And I think that overwhelms him. It grieves him. I've had the opportunity as a pastor to preside over many funerals. and There's such a contrast. I was talking just this week to my wife about this. There's such a, a stark contrast between the funeral of one who died in faith, trusting in God, believing in Christ, secure in their faith, holding fast and firm to the word of truth, longing for the day that they would be in a new heaven and a new earth with Christ their King. There's such a difference between standing before a casket of someone like that and the presence of believing people and standing next to someone who had no faith, no relationship with God, no, no evidence, no fruit of the gospel in their lives, surrounded by those much the same. It's like being in two different worlds. The, the hope that exists in one and the hopelessness that exists in the other. And I think that David here, in his response to Absalom's death, his, his anguish was because he understood that Absalom had no hope in the Lord. Which brings us to that last point there in your outline, point three. That the reminder we have here, as we consider our own mortality, as we consider the death of Absalom and the faith of David, that Number three, Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. 
But we see clearly as we come towards the end of 2 Samuel that David was a king who suffered. But the reason for much of his suffering was his own sin. It was his own shame. The scripture tells us if you sow the wind, you, you reap the whirlwind. And yet, David was in a covenant relationship with God. David was the Lord's anointed. And David knew what it was to experience the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. David, in that covenant that God had with him, was promised that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, would be the Messiah, would be our Savior. And Absalom is clearly not that descendant. Absalom was a sinful man driven by vanity who dies in shame. And so there's no hope to be found by trusting in someone like Absalom. But we also can't put our hope in David, can't we? Because David too is one who's scarred by sin, who so often is dealing with shame. He, he so often is a reminder to us that he wasn't the Lord's anointed because he had done it or earned it. It was because of God's covenant that God held with David, not that David held so firmly to with God. And so the hope can't rest in David. But Jesus is the descendant of David in whom we put our hope. He's the one not covered in shame, but who carries our shame. He's the one who bears our grief and bears our sorrows. He's the one that goes to the, sin, to the cross for our sin and lifts our burden when we repent and trust in him. And so as we come to the close of chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, the question for each of us is, are we hoping in Jesus? Are we trusting in him? I'm very aware that most of us in this room have heard the gospel many times. But I'm also aware that there perhaps are some of you in this room who, who think that, you know, that's something I'll deal with later. I know I need to get right with God. I'll do that later. I can tell you about hundreds of conversations I had as a campus minister with college students who would essentially say that very thing. Well, I know faith is important and I know Jesus is important, but right now I want to have fun and I'm going to come back to that later. And maybe some of you in this room, that's, that's just how you've lived. It's, well, yeah, I know I need to get right. I know I need to trust in God. But, but, but I'm going to get to that later. Absalom's death is a reminder to us that God doesn't owe us the opportunity for deathbed repentance. That, that, that the day that we die isn't a day that we choose. and isn't even a day we know that's coming. Absalom went to battle that day believing and thinking and living as if he was going to secure his place on the throne over Israel. He was going to finally eliminate the threat of his father and he would be victorious. Things took a turn, but perhaps he was already scheming and thinking about plans for how he was going to come back in battle and take out David and his men. And while those very thoughts were filling his head... It was over. In a moment, in a second. And friend, the same thing comes for us. 
But we don't know. It may be that we die a long and slow death, the effects of aging overwhelm us, and that we lay in a bed and we consider our mortality for months, even years. Or it may be that you don't make it home today. None of us are promised another day. And that is why the Scripture clearly says to us, today, today is the day of salvation. So friend, I beg of you this morning, if the gospel has become clear to you that you indeed were born a sinner deserving the wrath of God, if the gospel has become clear to you that God sent His Son, His only Son, to die in your place and mine, if the gospel has become clear to you that if you will confess your sins and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if the gospel has become clear to you that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, then friend, call on the name of the Lord. And do not wait another day. Do not wait another moment. Because God in His grace has given you this one. And He's called you and I to respond. It may be that you have clearly responded to the gospel, and yet you know, you know, You're not living as you should be right now. God has brought conviction in your life. You know you need to repent. But you too have told yourself, I'll do that later. Later may not come, friend. And so repent today. Come to Christ today. While there's still a today. We invite you to do that now as we respond. So if you would stand together as I pray for us as we sing together, and as we respond to God's Word together. Father, You have been so gracious to every one of us in this room. We we are not here this morning by accident, and we're not here this morning by our own devices. You and Your grace and goodness and mercy and sovereignty have brought us here at this moment that we might hear Your Word and respond to it. And so I pray now, Lord, that You would do what only You can do through the power of Your Holy Spirit. That You would lead us to repentance, to trust in Jesus, and to cry out to the Lord together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to respond now to God's Word through worship and through lifting our voices and singing together. And as we sing, I'll be available down front to counsel with you. If God is leading you this morning to respond to that that gospel hope and that gospel promise, or perhaps you, you need to talk more about that, you have questions about that, I'd love to counsel with you today. I'd love to set up a time to meet with you even this week, and we can talk over these things. Or maybe that you know today, this is the moment, this is the time I need to put my trust in Jesus. I need to go before this body of believers and let them know I'm trusting in Christ. I need to take that next step of obedience and baptism. I need to start the process of joining this church family. Or maybe you just need someone to pray with you. I'd be privileged to do that. Others are as well. And so we invite you to come. We invite you to sing during this time of response.